Welcome to our podcast. If you enjoy this segment, we encourage you to check out the others. Also, if you're new to Hedgeye, you qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. I am Keith McCullough, and welcome back to the summit. It is day three, and thanks for all your kind compliments and all your feedback. We've uh, had a, a heck of a two-day run, and I'm expecting to have the same here on day three. Uh, welcoming for the first time Murray Stahl and James Davalos. Thanks, guys, for making the time. First time I get to get the uh, two-on-one here. I'm going to have to play a little defense. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much, Keith. Yeah, well, you guys are um, squarely in topic number one of macro these days, which has to do with inflation. And I want to get into, you know, not only, Murray, like how you've thought about this over the course of a long period of time, uh, that is macro investing and how to allocate assets, defend against inflation or deflation fully loaded. And of course, James, like how to, how to think of, and you have some, obviously some, some investment products that, you know, address the issues. But first I want to, you know, do the top down part, if, if you don't mind, Murray. Just, just from, you know, 50,000 or 100,000 feet, like what the hell do you think's going on out there from a global macro perspective? And what's really changed, you know, in terms of how you've thought about the game over, over time? Well, I like to think of myself as a student of history. And uh, in the context of history, for as far as we can go back, every fiat currency ultimately gets debased. And it gets debased because the governments, I guess their ambitions are greater than their, than their capacities. And they take advantage of the faculty of creating money. So I think that's true of every currency and every government in the world. So we take the major ones, the dollar, of course, the euro, sterling, the Japanese yen. If you look at the central bank statistics of each of those areas, you'll see the money creation over the last year or so is double digits. So basic economics tells you if the money supply is rising at a faster rate than the supply of goods and services, which the supply of goods and services is obviously not rising at double digit rates, supply and demand tells you that the currency will be debased. And that's the definition of inflation. That's as simple as that. Now, when you take that, and we've had multiple conversations um, at the, we've attacked, tried to attack MMT in different ways. Uh, Daniel Lacaya yesterday was hilarious. He's like, look, first of all, uh, it's not modern and, and, and it's neither a theory. Uh, this has gone on with countries like Argentina in particular, uh, Venezuela, Poland, go down the line for, for, forever. I mean, so what is, what is it about today and the policy setup that we have? Where it makes it, and 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 agree with me if you if if you do, and obviously um, you know disagree if you don't. Um, but what is it that makes the current currency setup and government power so dangerous in America in particular? Well, it's not that it's dangerous. It's as old as history. So we could be yep. talking about the Roman sestercius and denarius, same sort of thing. And if you ever read Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, you're amazed at how many hundreds of years it took. For that to contribute to collapse of the Roman Empire. We are lucky today in that our society is more stable, technology advances at a more rapid rate, and um, history moves faster than it did, obviously, in the first centuries um, of the first millennium. So basically, a society can tolerate inflation, it just that's the involuntary 
um, transference of wealth from one group of people to another group of people. Some people benefit mightily from inflation. Some people are hurt mightily. If you are a person who is on a fixed stream of income, you own bonds, let's say, you're an endowment, you have a life insurance annuity, you have a pension. Unfortunately, inflation is not good for you. Now, having said that, the last four decades prior is the era of the era of disinflation. If you're a bond investor, if you had a fixed stream of, of income, if you're a real estate investor and had a fixed stream of rental income uh, guaranteed by AAA leases, it was wonderful. And ultimately, the government can't uh, can't function in deficit mode forever. So at some point, you have to pay for goods and services if you're a government, and they exercise their faculty of creating money. It's as simple as that. And do you think, and because uh, a lot of people don't, a lot of people think that this is a cyclical inflation and the secular disinflation or deflation is what we're going to meet up with in, never mind, you know, three to six months, but some think it's imminent. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, um, there's some differences about disinflation. You couldn't call it cyclical. So, for example, I guess it's a virtue of modern technology. We've created products the like of which never existed before in history. So to go through a few, the catalytic converter, believe it or not, you need a little bit of rhodium in the catalytic converter. I know you won't believe this, but the price of rhodium in the last five years is up like some incredible amount of money. It's $27,000 roughly for one ounce of rhodium, one ounce. So I think rhodium prices year to date, and we're only, I think, in the 10th week of the year, I think they're up something like 50 or 60 percent. You have to have rhodium. There's no substitute for rhodium because it's mandated by the government. Okay, let's go to something else. Um, your cell phone, your smartphone, you set it to vibrate like in a conversation like this. You don't want to ring, of course. <laughs> and I know you won't believe this, but the price of neodymium or neodymium, as the scientists like call it, is basically an element with magnetic properties. And that's what causes electric motors to work, how you get the reciprocating motion, electric motors, that causes your cell phone to vibrate. That thing is up tremendously. It is no good substitute for neodymium. Lithium for the electric cars. I can go on and on, just touch on lithium for a second. I'll, I'll turn it over to you. But lithium is up maybe 50 or 60% year to date. There's plenty of lithium in the world. It's just that we're reaching limitations of how much can be extracted from brine. And now we have to get it from mining, which is a rock called spodumene. And I guess they call it um, cost-push inflation in the textbooks. And that's what's happening. And there are key things which there aren't very good substitutes. And that's the difference between today and some other eras, I think. Now, on the I, a cost push is a great point. Like we've had a lot of ideas actually on you know think of Mountain Pass, which is one that we came up with through a SPAC, and you're probably familiar with it. Um, you know, but again, rhodium, lithium, etc. You got that cost push inflation, but then you got like old school, you know, where you started or maybe didn't start, but you have more experience than let's just say anybody probably who's listening uh, to this conversation in the grains market. You know, you get this move. This is an epic move in in corn in ag broadly. What do you what do you think about that? Well, it's the same sort of thing that basically as a society, as we seek to control CO2 emissions, most activities, fortunately or unfortunately for the world, involve CO2 emissions. So if you want to electrify the plant, let's say, and you're going to need a lot of copper, well, it has to be smelted <laughs> because it's cuprite when it comes out of the ground, not copper. That requires energy. 
um, if you want to um, plant and harvest various grains, that also requires energy. So if you want to keep the CO2 emissions constant, you're going to have to do something about the production. And if you do something about production, and maybe it's very proper to do something about production, well, you're constraining supply. Demand is going to grow because the world's population is still growing. And there you go. It's now that's demand pull inflation. So there are a lot of constraints that policymakers have, unfortunately. Well, it's an interesting. I mean, we're certainly at that at that spot where you can't screw up having uh, a long term view. I mean, you, you, like, again, we have secular views, we have cyclical cyclical views. And we're at a moment in time where uh, these commodities are indeed more precious than they've been for a long time. And I don't th- I don't I don't find a lot of uh, institutional clients that I talk to uh, arguing with that so so much because so many people are bought into the technological cost push side of what you said. But on everything else, I think there's a, a serious level of ignorance or macro unawareness is what I call it. Um, and, and me myself, like when I look at my model and I say, OK, look, this inflation is going to absolutely rip, you know, in, in terms of headline CPI in the next three months. And I, and I do want to get into what you know, James is thinking there, because you guys obviously have different strategies that address that specifically. Uh, but again, like once we get through that, the big open question is how sticky is the cost push or the pull you know, on the inflation? And, and I obviously have no idea. Um, but hearing guys like you, I, I think what you're saying uh, is that you should get used to uh, sustainably higher, higher lows and higher highs in prices broadly. Well, I would say for a lot of commodities, yes. So as I said, if we're going to electrify the world, you're going to need a lot of copper. So if you're going to put a windmill 10 or 15 or 20 miles offshore and run a copper cable to a main utility line, that is a lot of copper. And you're going to expose it to the elements because it's going to be sitting in 250 feet of seawater. And you got to clad it in copper and nickel. It's just the way it is, yep. and so on and so forth. The the electrical windings in a turbine requires copper, also requires neodymium or dimium, however you want to pronounce it, and so on. So I guess the benefits of our society are we have a lot of technological choices, and the, the detriment of that, because there's always a downside, is there aren't a lot of materials you can choose from. I think there's a hundred and, I think it's 118 elements in the periodic table, might be. I think it's 118 elements. I don't want to betray my ignorance of chemistry. But I think it's 118 elements. That's what God made, and that's what you got to work with. So we have to live with that. Yeah, living with that and living with sustained inflation, uh, what it gets you to, obviously, is some kind of an economic stagflation over time. And, and that's an interesting one, because right now, at least according to me, um, is that we're in this period of real growth and inflation accelerating at the same time. That's the, basically the only reason why gold has been going down. Real rates go up, nominal rates go up. Uh, but that's a, that's a cyclical move. You know, once we start to get into what is this new cost of labor from the U.S. government, what is the level of money printing, what are, what are all these inputs that you're talking about longer term on the, on the cost push side in particular, um, that's, it, it can get very hard to answer the questions. But it seems to me that most asset allocators uh, have a yes or no with no real framework. And that's a real tough one. How do you, like, if you're to tell an asset allocator today, like, and, and this is where we'll bring in James, I'm sure, but I mean, if you're to tell an asset allocator how to, how to, how to inflation, inflation adjust your portfolio, your asset allocation, you know, today, you know, what would you do and pick your durations? I don't mean like a day trade. I mean something, you know, that gets beyond the cyclical spike in inflation in the next three months. Well, I would say you've got to draw from your bond portfolio because your bond portfolio is clearly being debased especially if you're a taxable investor, but even if you're not yeah. taxable. 
we could debate the actual rate of inflation. And really, it's a question of what do you think the, not just what do you think the inflation rate is going to be, what do you think the probability is going to be? So unfortunately, many of the stocks in the S&P 500, they're not necessarily going to benefit from inflation. Yeah. We can cover that in a minute. So I would say to the degree you think there's going to be inflation, whatever probability you assign, if you assign 1% probability to it, I would peel off 1% of my bond portfolio and put it in inflation beneficiaries. If you think it's a 10% chance or 15% chance, I would do more accordingly. Um, I wouldn't put 100% of my bonds. I think bonds have some virtues. It's ready cash for emergencies. It is guaranteed by the government. But I think you have to have something to offset the obvious debasement characteristics of the bond portfolio. I, I think that, that's something that is, is shocked people, actually. Anyone who's got a, God forbid, a 60-40 setup this year, pensioners, plenty of them have them, have been smoked. I mean, because they're long, perpetual duration or deflation. And um, you know, the virtue of, of our virtues is that we've been short the long bond, which has been awesome. Um, but, you know, I got, I got to live in fear of these, you know, these reallocations or these asset allocators coming in saying, okay, there's the price. I mean, there's the valuation. Uh, last question on that, because you've done a lot of work, and it's actually a, a little odd to have <laughs> somebody who's Graham and Dodd type, you know, going all the way back, or at least in the beginning, um, just thinking about uh, what I think is your, your history, um, it, and, and still having these thoughts on, on Bitcoin. Um, that doesn't always, that, that, that's kind of a, a, a square peg in a round hole for some people, because, you know, people are so evangelical about Bitcoin in particular. You know, but, but how do you, like, how do you, how do you think about that? Like, do you think of, do you think of Bitcoin as an asset allocation? Let's start with that, uh, or coins in general. Um, and do you think of it as a commodity? I get a lot of pushback on calling it a commodity, by the way. Well, I would call it a commodity. And the reason is because in a normal commodity, the supply is only constrained by price. So if you took gold, if for some reason gold were $5,000 an ounce, people would find ways of digging the metal out of the ground. A cryptocurrency like Bitcoin the supply, to the extent you have a supply, is only about 2.3 million coins to be mined. That supply is constrained by the Bitcoin, Bitcoin protocol itself. So for that reason alone, you can't call it a commodity. It's merely an asset, and it's a, it's a substitute for money, if you want to look at it that way. But it's constrained money, mm -hmm. um, constrained by the protocol. See, I call it a commodity because it has the volatility attributes of only commodities. And that's where I put myself in a bucket that I'm willing to get out of. I, I change my mind all the time. So uh, I like your answer better, actually. That sounds like it. And, but I have said that commodities are assets, too. So I, I gave myself a little exit out of the bucket. You know, you know it's, a, it's okay to be that way. That's a great answer, by the way. Thank you for that. Uh, James, on these, like, like how, do you, how do you guys think about construction on, a, on, on inflation-adjusted portfolios or what you guys have come up with so far? Sure. And just to take a step back, I think that when you're looking at asset allocation within a framework of inflation expectations, it's not so much do you think there will be inflation, but do you think if there is going to be inflation, will it have a negative impact on your portfolio? And if you were to look at a, let's say you were to, to make a hypothetical duration calculation on the S&P 500, certainly within the growth complex, and then you mentioned these longer dated bonds, you've got a tremendous amount of duration risk and you need to find a solution where you can basically figure out ways to offset that without taking that big binary bet on CPI or some other type of construct that's linked directly to inflation. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, uh, historically, uh, I tr and I'm generalizing, I mean, now, how did we end up with certain asset management products that are allegedly going to protect you against that? Let's use tips. You know, when Dalio, you know, Dalio introduced them, he's like, I own them. Summers, can you sign off on them, Larry? Uh, yeah, and then he just pivot to owning those when we're in a period like this because it's going to outperform a duration portfolio. But the bloody things don't do a hell of a lot for you. I mean, for anybody who's, you know, that's been their greatest call in the history of their career being long tips, I mean, you're probably not going to be on this show, but the fact of the matter is, they don't. They they do to me that 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 asset management decision is is an old one. It's an old wall one, and it doesn't do a lot for me other than the alternative, which is get my ass kicked being long you know, duration. Yeah, that's a great point. And when I look at what tips is going to give you, especially if you hold it to maturity, the right. ten year is absolutely horrific. The tip is less bad, but still categorically horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Negative in real terms. What are you accomplishing? <laughs> so how did you think of the INFL? Which, by the way, I, I wanted to wait until we had this conversation. Uh, as I think you guys know, um, I own Ival, which is, you know, some people might think of it as the same. You know, just looking at it underneath the hood, you know, briefly, it's not. Let's just start with that. Um, but people are quite interested. Like, for me, that's what I did. I bought, you know, Nancy Davis. I had her on a conversation like this. Very uh, intelligent in terms of how she constructed the portfolio and how she thought about it. And I'm like, okay, I think the curve is going to steepen. Um, I'm going to short duration or TLT, and I'm going to buy eyeball, and it's worked out nicely. But I don't, I don't just, no offense to Nancy, I don't want to just ride one horse. I mean, there's got to be other ways... And, and, and maybe if you just have an opening you know, shot at that, like how did you think about constructing this and what does it do? Yeah, we're a bottom-up fundamental equity shop. And so we're not necessarily in the business of doing rate steepeners. But obviously, given the shortfalls of tips, that makes a heck of a lot more sense than owning a straight tip. Yep. But when we looked at wanting to have inflation exposure within these inflationary end markets, Murray touched on a few of them. One of the problems is that if you own them incorrectly, so meaning too early, you can get absolutely destroyed. So if you're early in an upstream gold producer, upstream energy E&P, upstream ag producer, you name it, because of the capital intensity, meaning both the working capital requirements and the balance sheet, if you time that cycle wrong, you can lose a tremendous amount of money. Right. So our solution is to try to figure out a way where you can compound in these v in these types of companies through a full or multiple business cycles. And the solution that we arrived at is something that actually Murray and the founders of the firm have been doing for upwards of 30 years, which is asset light, hard asset companies. Mm -hmm. So to simplify, basically, you have exposure to these hard asset inflationary end markets, but with an advantaged asset light business model that um so what we end up with so ifnl is is simply uh you know its constituents are equities um is that that's right i mean there is there anything Correct. else is there anything else in there other than equities that reflect asset light hard asset exposures it's it's 100 percent equities and okay. there's very there's various types of what what i would call asset light hard asset companies some have a, a direct interest in the underlying commodity itself. So right. a, a land company with energy royalties or a gold streaming company, an iron ore royalty. Uh, there's a variety of some unconventional asset-like companies that might have indirect exposure, such as a financial exchange. 
So think about if we really were to have much higher inflation, the amount of volatility that would flow through to the entire every asset class. So currencies, rates, hard commodities, soft commodities, energy, basically everything. And the amount of volatility and volume that's going to flow through something like the Chicago Mercantile Exchange or Intercontinental Exchange is just tremendous. Mm -hmm. And basically all these exchanges are today are supercomputers. So with that volatility, with that added revenue, they might need to plug in a new server. Not a, not a lot of, of variable expenses to earn an extra trillion dollars of throughput through your exchange. Mm -hmm. That's how. So that's why you guys own ICE, for example, in the in the fund in the top ten holdings. Um, you this this is a really interesting structure because like almost half of the almost half of the of the of the fund are is you know is 10 stocks right so um you know that's and it's an eclectic group i think it's not the stuff and maybe murray this is what you're getting to like when you buy the s p or god forbid you buy tesla uh you know when it's put into the s p <laughs> a lot of crazy things that people have done you know they're not getting an in inflation hedge uh relative to i'm assuming the number one holding in 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 this thing is is texas pacific land corp I bet you if I asked, uh, I don't know, I want to upset the Reddit mob, but if I asked, if I asked a panel at uh, CNBC's, you know, whatever the hell they call it, the investment committee or whatever that is, I'm pretty sure that nobody's long that. Um, can you talk about that, like in terms of what the alternatives are within the S&P and why you pick stuff like that? Okay, well, to begin with, you take your typical company. Let's assume, to give you a number to make it easy, the inflation rate were 10%. Not a forecast, just an example. Yep. So as a company, you could raise your prices by 10%. And theoretically, if you had a mind to, you could say, I could keep my employees whole, and I could raise their salaries 10%. And as wonderful as that sounds, from the employee perspective, that's completely unacceptable. Why is it unacceptable? Because something called a progressive tax rate. So if you get a 10% increase, your take-home pay is not going up by 10%. You're going to be a higher tax bracket. Your take-home pay might go up by 9.3% or whatever it happens to be. So to make you whole, if the employer wished to make you whole, they would have to give you a raise of, let's say, this is an exact, but as an example, 11%. Mm -hmm. But their prices are going up by 10%, and their margins would shrink. And that's the problem with inflation. Now, you could say, why doesn't the government just index all the tax brackets to the rate of inflation. And nothing would stop them from doing that, except that the benefit from the government point of view of inflating is now effaced, and there's no benefit from inflating. You'll still be in the same circumstance. Your expenses will rise at a certain rate, i.e. the government's expenses, and your revenues will rise at a certain rate, and you'll be in the same circumstance. So there's no solution. So it has to be, if you're going to buy an equity, you have to buy an equity whose expenses are relatively low. Mm -hmm. And the only group of equities really that have that are the so-called hard assets. A hard asset, let me define it, is a company where the revenues are derived from the asset itself, not from the, F the, the brilliant efforts of the employees to create new products and services. So any of the companies you can see in a portfolio have that faculty. Mm -hmm. That if you have inflation, the revenues rise, but the expenses do not rise commensurately. And therefore, the margins, if assuming you had an inflationary environment, would expand. 
That's it's as simple as that. And you get that from bottom up. And if you were looking at bottom up companies, who by the way, the hard assets are relatively rare in the universe of companies. If you were a bottom investor, you would never see that that characteristic. Yeah, it, that's you know, that, that's exactly what um, you know. If you think about Mountain Pass, you know, unless you want to buy a Chinese rare earth asset, you know, you're going to have a hard time finding more than Mountain Pass's facility in in North America, and um, that makes that makes a lot of sense. But I guess one more question on this, because some people struggle. They think uh, use gold as an example in gold miners, because you do have um, you know one of my favorite companies of all time, Franco Nevada, in your in your top ten or at least as of the latest filings or holdings as of you know February um, you know something like that to me but I'm not like blind to it you know when I have a view that we're in what I call quad 2 uh, both growth and inflation accelerating at the same time rates rising nominally and real yeah I know my favorite gold companies or you know exposures to gold rising are going to get you know they're going to get punted they're going to get hurt the difference between that and quad 3 stagflation where gold always peaks rips and peaks like it did in 2011 and it did obviously into August, uh, is stagflation. So, stag, so again, why is there a di- and how do you guys solve for the difference between both uh, my quad two and quad three have one thing in common: inflation's going up. But in quad three, like you said, the people get screwed if if they're not, if they can't cover their costs. So, you know, how do you guys think about the difference when you when you think about this you know the this ETF in particular, or how you think about the world in general? Well, in the case of Franco Nevada, as a streaming company, their costs are upfront. They buy a royalty interest in a gold mine. Mm-hmm. They do not operate the gold mine. So basically, they put the money in up front, and they're entitled to a certain percentage of the revenues, calculated a number of different ways, but nevertheless, they're entitled simplistically to a certain quantity of the revenues. If the price of gold goes up, their revenues will go up, but their expenses will not go up. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they experience a margin expansion or improvement in periods of inflation, particularly when the metals prices go up. And that's what makes it so desirable. So you guys, I mean, so you guys like the royalty companies. I think, James, like when you said it, and I think most people are, what? Asset, light, hard asset? That doesn't like, that doesn't sound like a, um, but asset, light, hard asset is a royalty company, like Prairie, uh, Prairie Sky Royalties yeah. or Franco Nevada. These are the names that, that you have. I mean, royalties, you, you guys must just absolutely love those and look for more of those? Yes, and unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your point of view, there aren't very many of those companies on the planet. And I think we missed a few, but for all intents and purposes, we've got perhaps not all, but most of them. Well, some people think, well, the problem is that, you know, anytime Franco Nevada sees one of those, they go buy it, right? So it's not like, you know, they're, That's right. uh, is he, is he, by the way, I mean, uh, obviously, again, these are not, this is not like broadly owned, uh, Franco Nevada, like, you know, Tesla or Amazon, you know, it, do you think he's one of the greatest capitalists in world history? Yes, actually, because <laughs> if, if you take, like, to comment on, you're referring to Pierre Lassonde. Yeah, amazing. Obviously. Amazing. So I'm dating myself, but in the, I think roughly either 1984 or 1985, I heard the Franco Nevada at the time, there were, there were actually two companies. It was Franco Nevada and Euro Nevada. They were two different companies. Yep. They did the exact same thing. And I heard the presentation for the first time. I thought it was so brilliant. After an entire day, I was just jealous that I didn't think of it myself. <laughs> and it took me 24 hours to get my jealousy, and I just had to buy. I had to buy it. And in my mansion career, I owned Franco Nevada throughout. There was a seven-year period where um, it merged with uh, Newman Mining, 
and I couldn't own it. I, and Noah Mining, of course, was a conventional mining company. And I think it was the year 2007, it came public again. I had to buy it back, and I did. So I've owned it ever since. I've owned it too. And, and again, I have to risk manage the bloody thing because I like it so much. And this is something that, yeah, I know not, I'm not for everyone, but I, I have no problem selling pure stock. I mean, I don't sell all of it. Just like I, I never sell my physical gold, but I'll, I'll short GLD all day long if I have a view that rates are going to do what they just did. Um, so it's okay, at least for me. I did pick a Canadian, by the way, from St. Hyacinth, Quebec, um, in, in Pierre. I just don't think that people even, like, not, he's, again, not a name that rolls off everyone's tongue, but the first time I ever saw him present, same thing. I was at this um, Canadian, uh, Canadian mining uh, conference in Toronto, uh, and every, back then everybody could smoke in the room. It was just full of smoke. You know, everybody's you know, chugging on darts. And I'm like, this guy, is, this guy is either completely full of it, or he's the best guy I've ever heard speak about uh, making money in my life. Uh, so <laughs> that's great. How many companies are going to, you know, Pierre's not a young guy anymore. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, he's still on the right side of the grass, thank God. But I mean, how many people out there are smart enough to be copying him? Like, are there SPACs out there that are doing, you know, some kind of a version of a royalty company? Do you guys see a lot in the kind of no market cap space yet? Yeah, to the best of my knowledge, no SPACs. There are some small companies. There are no, no SPACs. There are some small companies that emulate the model like Sandstorm Gold or Cisco Gold Royalties. But the only problem is, it's not a problem. It's they're starting from a low base, obviously, and their capital only permits a certain number of royalty deals to be had. In the fullness of time, they'll grow the capital base and there'll be more. But to build a royalty company from start, don't forget, Franklin, Nevada was a small company in 1984. Tiny, so it yeah. took a lifetime to build it. And it will take a lifetime to build the others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's it's an amazing company, an amazing story. Um, if you guys don't mind, and I, I'm sure people, you know, uh, have a lot of questions about what you guys are building there. And congrats on everything so far. I mean, it's it's uh, the timing's been really good, uh, as as is always the case in markets. Thanks. You guys, you guys probably thought about that. Um, but uh, the first question uh, from David in Texas. And either of you can take a crack at it. Do you believe the current CPI index uses an honest methodology to measure inflation for the average consumer, or is it designed to hide it and save cost of living increases? Okay, well, let me just use an alternative. I'll answer your question directly, but I'll use an alternative word. Let's say they use a methodology that's different than the methodology I would use. <laughs> <laughs> you're, so, you're, you're such a gentleman, man. I appreciate it. No, that. I try to say something nice about everyone. And I'll even put the government's version in its best possible context because there's a case to be made for the government does they do two things which i'll use the word different one is they assume substitution so for example if the price of beef were to rise and the price of chicken rose at a lower rate or the price of chicken was lower the government assumes people will switch from beef to chicken and therefore the inflation rate would not be as egregious if you assumed that. Now, I'll give you, and there, there's, there's legitimate reason to say that. If you're a middle-class person and the price of product A is too expensive, you might switch to product B. So there is something to be said for their argument. The problem is, and now I'll take the other side, my side. The problem is that if you are at the poverty threshold or even lower than the poverty threshold, there's nothing to switch to. You are already are buying the cheapest products. And therefore, in that sense, I would challenge that assertion. They do one other thing, which is called the hedonic adjustment, 
I know it's a complicated word, but it comes from their website. This is CPI, this is the Bureau of Labor Statistics and CPI calculations. I'll use their example, actually give an example of this. As a society, we switched from the old color television set to the plasma TV. The plasma TV obviously is much more expensive than the old uh, color television set, but it's arguable it's a lot better product. You can access the internet through it. You can do all sorts of wonderful things to it. So they'll make a quality adjustment. And it's the same kind of concept. I'm taking some liberties here, but I don't think too many liberties. As if a stock left the S&P that it was a $50 stock, and you replace it with a $100 stock. You don't necessarily say that at 1% position, if it was that, then the S&P actually doubled in price. You just substitute a new product in the old base period and calculate from that. So what happens is, if we're going to buy plasma TVs, not traditional color TVs, you substitute the more expensive product in the base period, and therefore you don't get the, the increase in price that you would get from switching from the old product to new product. And you could argue that that doesn't properly represent inflation, although to be fair, it is a better product. So that, that's the differences. And that's why I use the word difference. And, uh, you know, I, I struggle with uh, the answer to that question sometimes. I mean, the fact of the matter is that they, it's a moving goalpost, too. I mean, I think they've changed the CPI nine times since 1996, at least, uh, in terms of how they calculated it in as much as anything else. So you, you have a very interesting thing. And people, I, I guess the best word is feelings. People have feelings about this, obviously, because they feel like they're being lied to. Uh, and that's, you know, that's an important feeling in life. Uh, how do you guys, like, I mean, do you, do you guys, do you guys feel like you have to explain that to people that are considering investing in INFL or, or, or not? Do you think it's kind of a nothing burger? You guys just got to find your way to make money and that's it? No, it's a very big deal. It is. Because academically, there are studies that show what the real rate of return is on bonds. Now, the inflation rate we're actually significantly measurably higher than what we believe it to be as calculated by CPI, it might well be that for many, many years past, we've already had a negative real rate of return on bonds. Mm -hmm. And if the majority of people believe that, that would change our whole outlook on rates, it would probably change the level of rates, which would change the valuations on equities and the valuation of real estate. It would be a big problem in society. And of course, not the least of which is, it would vastly increase the government's cost of financing the deficit and financing its debt. Hmm. It's a big deal. Well, I mean, people do, people do have that belief. Yeah, and again, we're not, uh, we're not calling out a small minority. We have a growing majority uh, of people that are along a certain thing called Bitcoin that I think at some somewhere at some level inherently believe that. So, um, do you, by the way, do you, would you guys put uh, a Bitcoin related equity into into your uh, into your fund or no? Well, this particular fund, not. But we have plenty of other funds. Bitcoin is in there. Yeah. So you just want to make this a little bit different and make it the pure inflation side because theoretically, somebody could say, "I'll buy a Bitcoin and I'll buy INFL," and they could do it themselves. No right. reason for us to do it. Well, what, what what other what other products? What do you mean? What, which ones do you put that in? Well, we have something called these are conventional mutual funds, small capitalization fund, the paradigm fund, the market mm -hmm. opportunities fund, and they have varying amounts, not small amounts of cryptocurrencies. Hmm. Uh, do, do you find that that's a that's something that people are asking you more and more about and asking for? Um, it only in the last four or so months. 
before so it's much. Not really. something that was something changed, I think, in the popular psychology roughly four or so months ago. And prior to that, you had to be a very bizarre human being to be involved in cryptocurrency. At least the people I encountered thought so. And now, I wouldn't say that they'll say you're a solid citizen, but they say there may be some merit to your argument, and they're willing to consider a small cryptocurrency allocation. Well, that, so the psychology is changing. Bizarre. I've had some bizarre interactions on this topic on Twitter. I just got to say, late at night, after a couple cocktails, I just I just have to hit the mute button on myself. But uh, James, doesn't it fit? Like, doesn't it fit the asset light hard asset thing, or is, do you have to struggle with the hard asset part on Bitcoin? No, I, I think that the differentiation here is that we don't want to own a the Bitcoin protocol itself, whether it's through the GBTC tracker or another way to get proxy exposure. Right. To the extent that there will be truly asset light businesses coming public in the next three, six, nine months, you see Coinbase filed an S1. It's something we'll be looking at. You see BAC looks like it's going to be public through a SPAC. Yep. Uh, Kraken has been talking about coming public. So certainly not something that we're ruling out, but we really want to emphasize these inflation beneficiaries having the operating leverage, being asset light. But I think categorically, you would call Bitcoin to be an inflationary end market to the extent there's an attractive business model. Yeah. I mean, if you listen to the guys, I think Coinbase is going to be a great IPO. I mean, I'm probably not going to get it at the price that I'd like. But fact of the matter is that, it, you know, if you like ICE as, a, as an equity, you're probably going to like Coinbase uh, based on, on the same merits, I would think. Is, is it that dissimilar? We'll see what the valuation is. I mean, ICE is really attractive. You're getting something close to a 5% free cash flow yield. So I think we'll have to see exactly what type of metrics Coinbase comes out at and relative to the market cap. But I, I think it's come down a little bit. But early indications were something like a $100 billion valuation where Coinbase is going to have a bigger market cap than Goldman Sachs at that rate. So <laughs> I'm not saying it's not justified. I, I don't have a strong opinion on it, but it really shows the changing of the guard. Oh, yeah. I, I have no problem with that changing of the guard, by the way. Um, <laughs> that's great. Um, the uh, next question, Bill from Montana, by the way. Dude, you've been getting, like, this guy's top three, because the questions, guys, they get voted up and voted down, so so we have a quality factor in the, in the model. Uh, but Bill from Montana, he gets in there again. He's got the number two question, and, and I'm, 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 I'm assuming this is pointed at you, Murray. Uh, on farmland is is that a good hedge rate now uh, and and does it really have little correlation to financial markets well it doesn't have great correlation to financial markets that's true in the equity market I think there's only two ways to really invest in farmland there's two REITs and one is called farmland partners the other is called Gladstone land I believe and they have yields I think they're in neighborhood about four percent I've never own them. The only the only negative thing you can say about them is, see, the business model is leasing farmland to people. And that's the only thing you can say that's negative, that most people who want to farm, they want to own the land. That's part of it. So to work as a tenant farmer on someone else's land, it's not appealing to very many people. And it's a sociological uh, yep. constraint. And that's what I think uh, inhibits the growth of the company. I guess that's the hard asset, hard life holding. That's, uh, that's probably what it is. I'd go with that one. Um, 
Uh, Dave in California, this question, Murray and James, what, what global markets do you see as hedges away from the dollar? It's a good question. Well, probably those markets where natural resources is the most important thing because the companies should make a lot of money and the governments should have their finances in better shape. So that would be the the same the people who are the governments were the victims of, of disinflation probably be the beneficiaries of inflation. That would be Canada, Australia, as to to mention, maybe to a lesser extent Brazil. There's so many other variables in Brazil. Um, maybe it's not a good choice. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting um, observation. The Canadian currency continues to, despite you know. Uh, smackdowns in the Swiss franc and the yen against the dollar, for example, uh, the Canadian currency continues to strengthen. I think there's a lot more going on there than just your run-of-the-mill currency pair trading that people are used to. Um, what do you think about, what do you guys, this isn't in the queue, but what do you guys think about water? Well, there are very, very few ways to invest in water is a scarce resource. I've been looking. Essential <laughs> to life, and there are very, very few ways on this planet to invest in water. You could buy water rights, but they're not publicly traded. But um, it's a scarce, great great asset. and People can find ways to invest in it. I would encourage people to do that. Yeah, I, um, I, I gave a presentation. I'm from Canada, um, so I'm heavily, hence the Pierre Lasson, you know, the love I have for the, and he's, and he's a Quebecer. You know, my mom is French Canadian, so I love all that. But the, but I gave a presentation on this, um, once, and it, and it, and a lot of people had a lot of follow up. Well, how do I invest in that? How do I invest in that? So I spent a lot more time looking and looking, looking, I couldn't find anything. I mean, nothing liquid. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting one. But I, I still don't, like, if you wouldn't, if you're going to have royalties on other natural resources, why wouldn't you have, uh, somebody who figures that out? I guess nobody has, is so, what you're saying. The only company that I'm aware of, which is not very liquid, is called J.G. Boswell. J.G. Boswell, okay. Yes, it's ticker symbol BWEL. And it's a, it, as a matter of fact, there's a book written about the company called The King of California. It's a longer story that I can tell here. But basically, <laughs> there's land in central California, which is called Lake Tulare. You wouldn't see a lake there, but it's an underground lake. And there is no unquestionably enormous water resources there because what would otherwise be a desert, the company farms. So there's no question there's a lot of water there. The question is, what is this worth? And the company is notoriously secretive about uh, what it does, probably for entirely justifiable reasons. But it's the only thing I know of in the United States if you're looking for that kind of water investment. That's Man. the thing they should do. I'm looking at. I've I've never owned this. I mean, this has got a less than a billion in market cap still, but the stock's like parabolic. It's. Uh, I guess uh, they should keep it tight. What they're doing. <laughs> I, 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 anyway, you, you can read the book. It's called King of California, and it's a, it's an enjoyable read, even if you don't buy the stock. Yeah, that. that there's also. Go ahead. There's also a, there's also a company um, Pico Holdings where they got involved in some real estate and real estate development in Nevada and small, fairly illiquid. But they've been right sizing their portfolio and focusing purely on water and water rights. I think the ticker on that's PICO. PICO. You guys are giving me some like serious ideas here. This is good. Uh, thank you for that. <laughs> Maybe I should just avoid the queue all uh, entirely and just ask you guys for more tickers. <laughs> Thanks. I love, I love stuff like this. Um, here's a yeah, actually here. I, yeah, I'm gonna skip the California question. I'm gonna give Heather from Canada a question because I'm completely biased towards Canadians. Uh, I am. 
I am a non-investor and have some, you know, some Texas-specific land corp from pre- previous uh, advisors, and I can't find any guidance on this thing. Why do people not discuss this company? Well, for, I myself should tell you I'm on the board, so I don't discuss it much either. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I noticed when I mentioned it a couple times, you didn't like put up put up your hand. <laughs> yeah, well, I can tell you this: that that it was a trust until early in January, and as a trust. A lot of people just won't buy a trust. Now it's a corporation. Now it's a specific land corporation. And my gut feeling is I think people will pay a lot of attention to it. So I think you'll find in the future a lot more commentary on it. Is there something about that, James, on, you know, capital markets, I mean, in particular, where a lot of these things that you guys own, they're just not popular. They're not well banked. Is that that mainly it, the banking side or or what? I mean, that's part of the thesis here is we – thrive on independent thinking and looking where other people aren't looking and that's how we can purchase these assets and in some cases at tremendous discounts but you're right i think the way that the research and banking world has evolved with where they put ideas but also with indexation with the passive movement they focus on liquidity they focus on the biggest companies and these companies have been to use murray's terminology orphaned but now it's almost double orphaned yeah, double orphaned is good. What's this question about? Uh, I guess uh, I'm running out of time here, but I got to ask this. I didn't know this. Murray, what what's up with the vintage books? You're into that? Uh, yes, I'm a book collector. Oh, I awesome. got into it many many years ago, probably in the early 1980s, and I enjoy it. It's a hobby, and I write about it periodically because it's actually a hedge against inflation in a number of ways. Um, because people believe that all books, and it's true, all books are being digitized. So why do you have to keep the copies? Why not just throw them out? And a book is actually a thing of beauty if it's well made. And there are some people who just like the feel of the book itself. And it's the only asset, if you want to look at the other way, if you wanted, if it, if it was had value and you wanted to take it out of the country and have no one looking at it, you could put it on your arm and get on a plane. No one would question you whatsoever because it's a book. It just looks like a book. And so you could have a copy of an original copy of, let's say, Tale of Two Cities or, or I don't know, or, or Bleak House or something. And it's just reading material on, on the airplane and you can go wherever you want. And that book might be worth $125,000. Maybe walking with $125,000 on your arm. And no one will try to steal it because they think a book has no value. That is awesome, man. That's awesome. Like you're 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 like a you're like an encyclopedia of all this stuff, and and uh, I'm, I can see James is smiling. Uh, the, the the fact of the matter is that it was a it was an honor to have you uh, have you guys on, and and thanks for teaching people a lot uh, about what they don't know. I think every day, I mean, if if you can keep reading books, you're going to know you don't know a lot about a, a lot of things. And uh, to me, at least, this was this was a, a very good conversation. Thanks for joining us. Okay, thanks so much for having us. Yeah, yeah, this was great. Thanks again, Keith. You got it. Thanks, James. Thanks, Murray. Uh, that was, I, I love that. I love books. I, I think I, I might have some, I, I might have some kind of a bromance with, with Murray. Uh, up next, Jeff Snyder going total plumbing, total plumbing.
This content is for informational purposes and does not constitute an offer to sell or buy any investment vehicle, nor does it constitute an investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. Hedgeye believes the information sources to be reliable but is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions. The opinions expressed are those of the individual speaking. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information is protected by copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient provided access by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited and subject to the terms of service at Hedgeye.com.